Greetings and welcome to Worship Matters, a podcast from Discipleship Ministries, an agency of the United Methodist Church located in Music City, Nashville, Tennessee. This podcast deals with the intricacies of planning worship each week. I'm Diana Sanchez-Bouchong, Executive Director of Worship Ministries and Director of Music Ministries. And I'm Lisa Hancock, Director of Worship Arts. During this time of transition from virtual to online and hybrid worship, the worship team has endeavored to provide conversations that inspire worship teams and leaders to seize this moment and realize the opportunities before the church, finding ways to help those worshiping with us to re-engage and shape the church we are becoming. Today, we are delighted to welcome Dr. Marcel Silva Sturnagel. Marcel is an assistant professor of church music and director of the Master of Sacred Music and Doctor of Pastoral Music Programs for Perkins School of Theology at Southern Methodist University. He holds a PhD in church music from Baylor University, an MA in music composition from the Federal University of Paraná, Brazil, and a BA in conducting and composition from the School of Music and Fine Arts of Paraná, Brazil. Marcel served as Minister of Worship, Arts, and Communication at Redeemer Lutheran Church in Curitiba, Brazil, for more than a decade, and is an internationally active composer and performer, having performed in both popular and concert environments in Brazil, North America, Europe, Africa, and Asia. He has released pop rock albums, premiered choral and orchestral compositions in churches and universities, and edited hymnals. Marcel writes at the intersection of church music, theology, musicology, and performance theory, both in Portuguese and English. His most recent monograph is Church Music Through the Lens of Performance, published on Routledge's Congregational Music Studies series in 2021. Welcome, Marcel. Tell us, how are you doing and what is going on in your life and ministry right now? Thank you, Lisa. It's a pleasure to be here. It's good to be with both of you, Diana and Lisa, to be able to talk about worship and stuff. (laughs) (laughs) I I am currently in South America in Brazil. I'm doing some summer research down here with a congregation, working on a recording project, taking some time with family as well. You know, for us academics, the summer is usually when we do all the other stuff that we can't get around to (laughs) during the year. Yeah. But all is good. Very good. If anybody could hear in your bio, there are so many aspects of church music and worship life in the church that we could talk to you about today. But we really wanted to have this initial conversation with you on the podcast to talk about your book, Church Music Through the Lens of Performance. And anybody who's kind of been in the church music world for the last several decades is going to go, performance, church music? What? Isn't performance a bad word? <laughs> exactly. But you you acknowledge that. I love it whenever an author says from the get-go, yeah, I know that this is part of it, and we're going to jump into it anyway. So you acknowledge from almost the first paragraph, performance has been a bit of a bad word in the church. But 
here you are. You don't just perform church music, but you write about performance in church music, and you train students to perform in church music. So how did you become interested in exploring church music through this lens of performance? And really, what we all want to know is what do you actually mean <laughs> by performance? <laughs> well, that's the golden question, right? Yeah. Um, that performance scholars uh, are always trying to answer in definitive ways, and it's never definitive. But uh, let me start with a, with a little story. So, you know, I'm a pastor's kid, grew up making music from an early age in, in church and outside of church. And as I went through my musical training, I think like like many, many musicians who mm-hmm. who happen to be uh, involved with church work or or somehow there's some theology and ethics and morals that are downloaded into how they think about what they're doing. So I had you know, one silo for church music, one silo for pop mm. and rock, one silo for jazz, one silo for orchestral and, and choral music. And I remember being in college and in conducting class. So, you know, running patterns where you're doing one, mm-hmm. two, threes and one, two, three, fours. And I would walk on the street doing these patterns. But that silo didn't connect with my church music leadership silo necessarily, especially because I was, I was sometimes leading traditional worship, sometimes leading contemporary worship. Mm. And I remember that was a week where I, I had been walking through the town all week running, you know, doing patterns with my hands and cueing imaginary, you know, woodwind sections or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I was leading a contemporary service at church and without thinking about it, you know, the, the, the chorus came on and I cued, I, I cued the congregation <laughs> because that's what I had been practicing all week. And, and they responded <laughs> in a way that was, <laughs> that was, you know, different from, from what I expected. And I, that's when one of those walls came down mm. and I realized that it didn't really make, se- make sense to keep these things separate. And as I kind of became more experienced with music and music engagement and making music in different places with different people, first of all, I realized that the silos didn't really make sense. And second, especially in church music, I realized what trauma has been generated mm. through some of these discourses around what we call music making in church and how we narrate it, justify it. And performance is one word that has been bandied about and weaponized. You know, you look Mm -hmm. at the, I'm thinking of Terry York is a scholar who wrote a book called The Worship Wars. And he talks about how the kind of polarization of certain, you know, camps, traditional, contemporary, this or that. Performance is a word that was really thrown about in many different ways to the point where nowadays no one wants to say it everyone fights about it and no one understands what they mean by it. Mm-hmm. But you can't get, really get around the reality that when we're making music in church, there is a performative dynamic involved. I mean, you can say it's not a concert all you want. Mm-hmm. There's still preparation, leadership, mm-hmm. spectatorship, participation, you know, the things that characterize d- the dynamics of performance. So instead of bashing the word, a little bit more. <laughs> it's almost like bashing a, a, a pinata that has already been cracked open a billion times. Right. Or instead of ignoring the word or trying to bypass it, which is really hard, mm-hmm. because then you don't deal with the dynamics of what's really happening. Um, what I'm trying to do with the book is to help church musicians, practitioners, uh, church leadership, I don't know, deacon boards. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. anyone who, who has to make decisions about music and worship not talk past each other when they talk about performance. And and it's really interesting because it's a word that people obsess over and fight over. 
there's this whole field of study called performance studies mm-hmm. that doesn't seem to interface with church music scholarship or hymnology or what have you, but but is very helpful in understanding the dynamics of performance, defining it, and giving us, if you will, a, a matrix through which we can interface with the phenomenon without getting caught in the weeds of whatever trauma we bring with us. So to kind of wrap up this answer, it's a book that says, yes, we are performing when we when we make music in church and when we do all these other things in church as well, but that's beside mm-hmm. the point. The classical definition of performance, one of them, right, is that performance is both being and doing at the same time. Mm-hmm. So that opens up an avenue for thinking of performance in church, not only in terms of what we're actually doing when we're making music, but, you know, these pastoral, formative, spiritually relevant processes within liturgy that that shape our Christian experience. They shape our piety they shape our worldview. They give us language. So by being in, by considering being and doing at the same time, suddenly you have the, like this, this landscape of possibilities in terms of what music does or does not do in church and how church musicians can go about doing their job. I don't know if that's a helpful answer, but that's kind of what I do in the book. I, I, I think that's incredibly helpful. And I, I want to name one of the words that you kind of pull out I don't know if you intend it to contrast performance, but it certainly struck me is this word of presentational. And I was like, gosh, I needed presentational years ago as as I was having these conversations because I, for me at least, it evoked this notion of music that is there for me to present to you and you to just passively receive versus what I feel you were bringing forth about performance, which mm. is that all of us in the room are being and doing with it, no yes. matter what our role is yeah. in that space. Yeah. That's that's a really good a really good point, Lisa. Because you know the the presentational language comes from the work of an ethnomusicologist called Thomas Torino, mm-hmm. and he has different modes of music making. Two of which, you know, one is participatory, the other is presentational. One of the things he says is that one does not negate the other. In other words, mm. if I'm listening to a choral anthem that I'm not singing, I am participating. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, the term that the, the Second Vatican Council would have used is, you know, conscious active participation. So in that sense, listening is not just a, a, a neutral, passive, ungenerative experience. It's actually very generative in all these different senses. And that opens up the possibility for church musicians to think about modes of interaction, you know, mm-hmm. just like in dialogue. Sometimes we're quiet and we're listening. Sometimes we're speaking. Sometimes we're singing. We're, we're going back and forth. And that's the flow that you want to create in worship for, to tell this, you know, this larger story, if you mm-hmm. will. What I find fascinating is the, the interplay of the word performance and practice, because you think that practice is the work that we do together, whether it's in a rehearsal room or in a sanctuary. We are practicing our faith, and that, mm-hmm. of course, is different than performing in a concert hall. But that practice is participational. And the other thing I think about as you're speaking is the performance, who's the audience? Well, part of it is we're the audience because we're practicing for ourselves to grow as Christians, to grow as spiritual people, but also ultimately, as Kierkegaard said, the audience is God. So we're mm-hmm. always practicing to be in communication, in alliance, in community with each other, but ultimately with God, which helps us to grow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that idea, uh, Diana, uh, uh, for me, that's been really liberating, right? So to going 
from uh, l- let me first apologize I, there, there's like dogs a billion dogs around where, where i'm staying so <laughs> they're constantly chipping in uh, to our conversation that it, it was extremely liberating to to shift in terms of a par- my paradigm from worship at something that i have to get right this sunday or else i'm going to lose my job or whatever to worship and music and worship is something we rehearse together as congregations as part of a of a bigger communal dynamic that we participate in, mm-hmm. right? Because yeah. that takes a lot of the pressure off of the music making. It, you don't have to relinquish excellence or whatever, but it's it's a pursuit that we're all uh, engaged in and with together mm-hmm. instead of something mm-hmm. that we either, you know, pass or fail. I don't mm-hmm. think that's very helpful. Yeah. there's There's got to be room for the Holy Spirit in all of that as well. Yeah. Yeah. So throughout your book, you explore fo- four nodes of intersection. And, and I have to say, this is on page seven in your book, and I love me a good diagram. And you got a good <laughs> diagram in here. I, I, my eyes immediately go, oh, yeah, I get it. That's really cool. So there are four nodes or intersection points in the study of church music and performance. So these are ritual, which is in the middle or towards towards the middle, embodiment, which goes around the ritual, making special, which is another circle around that, and finally play and change. Each of these are so rich, just like your book. You unpack so much stuff and it's wonderful. But I wonder if you could give us a taste of what each of these nodes are and how we might encounter them when we gather for worship. Yeah. Thanks for that question, Diana. Uh I mean, that's, and then I go on to write the, to write, that's the book, right? right. Yeah, that's unpacking, the book, yeah. <laughs> unpacking that. So if I were to summarize it from the perspective of a church music practitioner, and again, I'm not saying, you know, someone with a master of sacred music, sometimes it's a clergy person, sometimes it's a volunteer. You might be an 18 year old leading, you know, a bunch of Hillsong covers, or you might mm-hmm. uh, be a 60 year old with an entire career of, of, you know, choral lit under your belt. But the reason ritual is in the center is because of the way that ritual studies examines the role of ritual activity in human experience. So there's a, there's this common core, you know, people fight about church music because it's important to them. Yeah. Sometimes. Yeah. yeah because they bicker and, you know, love to troll each other online, but mostly, you know, we, we fight about what we care about. And mm-hmm. when what we care about changes, we get upset. So that's the, the question then is why, and ritual studies is helpful to understand the, the, the gravity, the gravitas behind why we argue about music in, in church, because it's, it's, it's very deep and impactful. So first I study, I, I, I kind of unpack ritual and ritual studies for church musicians saying, when we're, when we're engaging in worship, these are the dynamics, you know, and then I, I bring in all this vocabulary from the work of you know, Victor Turner, Ronald Grimes, Driver, all these people that that study these whys. And then embodiment is the realization that no matter how much Christian tradition has tried and Christian theology has tried to kind of splice the mind and the body, the practice of worship is fully embodied. It's mm-hmm. something that we do in and with our bodies as Richard Schechner, who's a performance scholar, says, uh, we are never not our bodies, mm-hmm. right? And there's another chapter I wrote for a book called Ethics and Christian Musicking, edited by Nate Myrick and, and Mark Porter on that same series, a, a chapter called Praise, Politics, and Power, the Ethics of the Body in Christian Musicking, where I examine 
the history of Christian theology's engagement with the body in worship. Mm-hmm. And it's problematic almost from the beginning. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you can't dance. You're not supposed to do this. You're not supposed to clap your hands. Don't move too much. What does modesty look like? What does reverence look like? And that's a problem because when we make music, we make music with our bodies, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, in that note of embodiment, I'm looking at these discourses and the, these dynamics and and acknowledging the fact that there's a lot of really good theological literature out there right now that has turned around and said, okay, how do we, you know, instead of trying to negate the body, how do we deal with it in worship? I'm mm-hmm. thinking of Frank Zen's embodied liturgy and other other really good contributions. I think of Helen Kemp. Remember Helen Kemp in Courser Skills? She would say, body, mind, spirit, voice. It takes the whole person to rejoice. Yeah, yeah that's great. And that has always stuck with me. Yeah, yeah. it takes it, all of us, the body and everything. Mm-hmm. So, there, yeah, and there's no, there's no such thing as a disembodied voice, no matter how much Christian theology <laughs> wish that were the case. So, and then making special, the, the other node is, it, it, it comes from the ritual, the study of ritual, right? And there's a, a scholar called Ellen DeSanayaki. She's an, an ethologist. Ethologists study the development of human behavior. And she she's kind of investigating the connection between art and ritual activity. It's like, you, you don't need art for ritual activity, but it's always there. Mm-hmm. Why? Mm-hmm. Because it helps us to make special what we consider special. So, you know, if, and you look at the, the construction of the tabernacle, for example, or, or Solomon's temple. Yeah. You indicate that a place is separate, that it's different, that it's unique by gilding it, by ornamenting it, by painting it, by, you know, fanfaring it. That's making <laughs> special. And we make special time and special place when we go to church. You know, you put on your Sunday best. It's it's different, right? And then finally, play and change. There's a, a, a really, it's almost a hundred-year-old book written by a Catholic called The the Spirit of the Liturgy, Romano Guardini. And he talks about the play of the Holy Spirit and this idea that, you know, we tend to think of God as this very somber, serious, uh, you know, orderly entity and there are all these voices in Christian theology that talk about the, the spirit of God at play and the idea that we can play with liturgy and that it does change mm-hmm. no matter how much we would like it not to. In <laughs> fact, in, in, that, in my book, um, I talk about messiness in church music mm, yeah. and the fact that, you know, it's more like child's play where paint is going to get on the curtains and you can never remove the paint and now it's there. <laughs> Uh, so much so that the, the book that I'm writing now is called Messiness in Church Music because I'm mm. exploring that further. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Yeah, and it seems like we have to give, or someone has to give permission to be messy, you know? And and that's and that's such a gift when people go like, I can do this now? This is so cool. And as I was reading that part in the later in the book about reframing some of the structure that we have in ritual— mm-hmm. So that it becomes new again, and then it become then people are more able to be in the flow of worship. I think about Jazz Sunday, how people love hearing the hymns in a jazz version and having more jazz infused in color and and so many things that we used to do at my church, and how people got into the flow in a whole different way. And I love how you lay that out in the book. Yeah, th- thanks, Diana. Uh- 
the book is supposed to open up possibilities. So I think if you know if someone reads it looking for like a you know a ten step or an answer at the end, <laughs> yeah. then, uh, I I hate to disappoint you, but that's not really what I think we're doing when we make music in church. We're exploring mm-hmm. possibilities, right? You, you mm-hmm. talked about the jazz thing, and we talked about rehearsal before, and you know if you consider worship and music and worship as improvisation, for example. Then there are so, you know, it opens up a world of possibilities. Improvisation is not chaos. In fact, a lot of study right. goes into good improv, right? right? Yeah. But in learning to listen to each other and go back and forth and develop themes, mm-hmm. we grow, we mature, mm-hmm. and we enrich our experience. Yes. And then when you bring in the Holy Spirit and, you know, the, the presence of God into that equation, then it, you know, that just blows the whole thing up. And I love that. Yeah. <laughs> I also really, I'm, I'm really stuck on kind of this child's play idea, and it may be because I've got a preschooler at home, and, <laughs> and I'm currently sitting at a table that I'm not sure I'll ever get be able to get all of the paint stains off of, right? And I'm so struck by with this, this framework you've given us, messiness does not make something less special, and I think that that's, and, and you know, maybe I'm, maybe it's, it's not just church music. It's kind of a, a social construct here in the U.S. But I think about like, if everything, you know, if we're going to have a special meal, everything's going to be clean. We're going to have a nice tablecloth and we're going to get the good dishes out. We're going to make sure everything is nice and pristine. And I've been in churches where it felt like that, right? Like everything had to be pristine, the pristineness, the cleanness, the the orderliness of everything was what made it special. And so the tension between there is this making special and and maybe orderliness is part of it, but it's not the only part of it because the messiness of it also relates to the making special of that worship space. Is that kind of some of what you're leading us into yeah, I'm I'm very much inviting people into a celebration of messiness. It's almost like a if you can't beat them, join them argument. Yeah, <laughs> you know, for example, you you rehearse your Christmas program with the choir for weeks on end, and mm-hmm. you work really hard to get everything in balance, and you know, you shape the vowels, and you look at the counterpoint, and then during the performance, someone's toddler in the back screams, right? Yeah, yeah. you can either be really frustrated, or you can understand that as an expression of community both why you spent so much time preparing and why you wanted the family with the toddler to come to the Christmas concert, mm-hmm. right? So uh, pastoral messiness in that sense. And also moving away from, I think, these notions of church music that have been celebrated for so long that rely on these these narratives of some kind of purity, you know, like a yeah, Lutheran yeah. German chorales, you know, it's just as if they were like a, a some kind of pure lineage, lineage of music that we have received from on high, well, you look at that history and it's chaos, right? You have Luther writing letters back and forth and people competing and writing music for Lutherans and Catholics at the same time. Mm-hmm. And then, so it's never not messy. It's never not a messy history. And acknowledging that, I think, helps us to look at our experience and the musical experience of the other as worthy of note, as human, and as part of the Christian story writ large. Mm-hmm. Instead of, you know, secretly thinking that our, our tradition and our music is better than everyone else's. I don't think <laughs> yes. that's helpful. Mm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm. Yeah. I think about Jesus visiting different people in his walks 
and it was never whether it was clean or or, or messy his very presence made it special it was mm. the embodiment that was mm-hmm. what made it special yeah yeah yeah, yeah. absolutely well If you pick up Marcel's book or anything else that Marcel does, I think you're going to notice this marriage of kind of what you call in the book, it's a marriage of theory and ethnography or theory and practice. We've already talked about kind of the marriage of the being and the doing. And one, I love this because it puts flesh on it. And as we've talked about, like you can't do church music without flesh. So how could you do church music scholarship without talking about the bodies and the the actual musicking, the music making, the music receiving, and all, everything in between in church music. But I wonder, I kind of want to shift us just a little bit because you have a really unique role that not a lot of people have in being part of training the new generations of church musicians who are entering a world that is completely different <laughs> from the church music world of 15 to 20 years ago. Yeah, yeah. I think I've heard you say it used to be the Westminster choir model and we are not there anymore. Nope. You know, a church musician is expected to be able to do sound equipment, play an instrument and be able to sing and be able to conduct and be able to do some of the worship planning. Like, and, and you may go into a place where you're told you're the organist, but if you're like me, you also end up having to learn how to play the djembe. And it's a beautiful thing, but, you know, it, we're, we're mixing a lot of different areas of study now to train church musicians for the churches that they're entering. And so I wonder how this being and doing informs the way you approach educating church musicians and and what? And how does it help you think about the future of preparing church musicians as we move forward? We know the church is not the same, and it is changing rapidly, it feels like. So what? how does this scholarship help you be part of that work for the church right now? Well, I think there are... That's a... I mean, if, I, if we can just solve that, right, Lisa, then we can solve church <laughs> music education. It's a really simple proposition. I think a lot about that because I think that, as mm-hmm. you said, the paradigms have, have changed so much. The landscape of church music practice has expanded and complexified. And there are all these things that we need to be doing and thinking about, you know, you didn't maybe in the past you had to worry about a publishing license, but you didn't have to worry about a streaming license. Now you have to worry about both. Right. Just to mm-hmm. give one example. Mm-hmm. I think that parallels a paradigm shift in education. You go from this kind of older model, which is just a transmission model, right? So in music education, I just will we'll train you for this. This is what you're going to do. And then we'll train someone else and they're going to do the same thing. And then there's a standard when in fact, mm-hmm. education and church music are all are both messy. So how do you prepare students for messiness? How do you prepare them for the fact that, you know, you, you can work with the assumption of an, a four-part SATB choir and then they go work at a church and all they have is a banjo and alto sax and a pair of congas. Like, what do you yeah. do? You know, how do you arrange for that? How do you select music for that? Well, I think part of the answer is that the rest of the world has a better track record of dealing with that than North America does because they're, they've never had the same kind of resources. There's like, you know, graded choir programs mm-hmm. are not a thing in Latin America, for example. You kind of make do with what you've got. So a, a lot of part, mm-hmm. a, a major part of my work has been 
creating hospitalities between the experiences of churches in the global south and in the north and mm-hmm. trying to be a liaison between these experiences and saying, what can we learn from each other? And I bring that into the classroom a lot. So the whole thinking and doing thing makes a lot of sense when you, when you think, for example, of the MSM, the Master of Sacred Music Program at SMU, which is, you know, a 60-year-old master's program. It's, it's not the new kid on the block. It's been there for a while. And it might be tempting to continue on the path of choral and organ, which we have for a very long time, very successfully. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't serve students well. Right. Now, I, I want to say very clearly that I, I'm not against choral and organ music. I, I, I just <laughs> premiered a choral piece the other day. I write organ music. You know, it, I, I, mm-hmm. I, I'm fully engaged with that tradition. But I also need to help students prepare for other things and other possibilities. So... More than even alternating between thinking and doing, in the MSM, we try to integratively approach thinking and doing. So if there's a class where, for example, we have a course, a seminar in worship arts where we talk about theological aesthetics and, you know, the development of Mm. the Christian imagination. Well, I can stay in the books and read, you know, Clement of Alexandria and Irenaeus and Augustine and Aquinas. But what, I've, what I'm trying to do is have them read Hildegard of Bingen or whoever it is. And then the next class will be a show and tell. Mm-hmm. And I'll be asking them to engage with their own reality, their own context. And they'll, sometimes they'll bring like graffiti, you know, and be like, yeah, Hildegard made me think of, you know, this graffiti I saw in Deep Ellum, Dallas. And I'm like, oh, that's interesting. And then how do we translate that into worship experience? So when we go to professional development and seminary singers and the the actual work that they're doing in front of congregations, we're trying to develop integrative approaches to the possibilities of church music. And we have students perhaps one week leading a Tizé service and the next week leading, you know, 13th century music. And then the next week they might be doing, you know, a Kirk Franklin piece. And it is a lot of work, but it also helps them to prepare for the possibilities of the garden of church music that they're going to be walking around in mm-hmm. when, when they step into their professional life. Right. Wow. That's, that's wonderful. I mean, I love your approach. And I know at Discipleship Ministries, we're thinking about how also to serve pastors, musicians, worship artists of all kind. And so it's good to hear what you're thinking so that we can also undergird that and yeah. and be able to serve the folks that are asking for more resources from us, including teaching. So thank you for that. This has been a great conversation. I hope we can have another one, maybe with your next book on the messiness of church music. <laughs> and uh, and yeah. I just thank you for being our guest today, Marcel. Yeah. Thank you, Diana. Thank you, Lisa. So thank you all for joining us today. We hope that this has been helpful to you. Remember that you can find more information at our website, umcdiscipleship.org. We want you to tell us what you think, so send us an email. Until next time, we will be praying for and with you and your congregation. May God continue to bless your worship ministry as you make disciples for the transformation of the world. Bye, everyone. This podcast has been a production of Discipleship Ministries, an agency of the United Methodist Church. Visit all our podcasts at podcasts.umcdiscipleship.org.